Welcome to Lawyers on the Block, the crypto law podcast from Roman Kubiak and myself, Kieran Forsyth, in the Private Wealth Group here at Hugh James. Over the series, we'll be looking at some of the major issues and hot topics in the crypto and digital asset space right now. Trigger warning, we are lawyers, so we'll inevitably talk about some of the legal issues involved. But don't worry, we'll try to keep the legal jargon to a minimum. Is common law able to keep up with the pace of change with crypto assets and particularly fraud in this area? Or is primary legislation, whether nationally or internationally, needed? This is a view expressed by a leading judge and the topic of today's Lawyers on the Blog podcast. Good morning, Kieran. How are you? Very well, Roman. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks. At at the time of recording, we're less than a week away to christmas are you all ready no which is why i requested thursday <laughs> off that's okay um anyway let, let, let's not talk about that's your shopping let's not day. talk about who's getting you know days off before christmas or not but um yes that is my shopping day so no I, i'm not ready but i am ready for this podcast because this is quite an interesting one but are you ready for christmas that's the important question that is the important question according to uh, my children at least uh yes yes i am santa's even Got his list. He's checked it twice. I, I, I don't know whether he's been too discerning about who's been naughty or nice, but um, yeah, when it comes to crypto, we, you know, sometimes you need to check that list a few more times because you, you know sometimes these unknown persons they, they tend to be very naughty, but we don't know who they are often. So uh, that's, exactly. that's, uh, that's a tenuous link to this podcast, isn't it? But um, it is, it is. But I mean, this this kind of kicks out from a seminar provided by one of the leading judges in the London uh, Circuit Commercial Court who presides over a lot of these matters. And and I think is exactly on your point there about, you know, who's been naughty or nice and persons unknown is that he's looking at this from the point of view of, you know, fraudulent activity and and the legislation required around that on on potentially what he's asking an international aspect, which I think is welcome. Yeah, it's uh, this is... Mark Pelling case isn't it? Is Honor Justice Mark Pelling is the the judge in charge of the London Circuit Commercial Court, the LCCC. He gave a talk, wasn't it, in November, and the uh, that that talk has been published now, complete with a few a few interesting typos. I think this may have been a uh, transcribed with the help of AI, but that that's a separate topic for a separate podcast. But um, talk was in on the thirteenth of November, wasn't it? Is a DIFC seminar we we think we've uncovered what that is it's a dubai are we saying is it, do we think that's a dubai international finance center yeah which seems to be a forum for the middle east africa and and, and south asia and, and and provide speakers discussing relevant topics and of course all those jurisdictions are, are very relevant here as of course as england and, and wales in terms of bringing these cases against you know like you said earlier you know persons unknown or even if it's persons known but bringing these cases and, and allowing them to be served in other jurisdictions using the various gateways which we've discussed before and, and, and which you know Pelling comments here I should I should say his honor judge Pelling comments in, in case he ever listens to this which is no discourtesy intended yeah indeed which in case he ever listens to this which perhaps is doubtful but you never know well I mean he, he's certainly prevalent on the um, both on the bench and and then the speaking circuit I mean I mean this talk Donna just Pelling gave a similarly titled talk back in July last year 
that was titled Issues in Cryptocurrency Fraud Claims. This one's Issues in Cryptocurrency Claims. So it, it takes out the fraud out of it. But actually, that, that that's the big theme of it, on it. And actually, if you compare the two yes. speeches, at least you know the, the first opening paragraphs are are quite similar. Yeah. And so, you know, a man after my own heart, I like to rehash a talk every now and then, not not reinvent the wheel. <laughs> but looking at this one, I mean, just by way of background to regular listeners of the podcast, uh, hi, Dad. We've <laughs> 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 got His Honor Justice Pelling KC was the judge in the Osborne case. That was a Lavinia Osborne case, which was the case which related to the stolen NFTs, which are worth all of about £4,000. But... That was the case where at first instance he was a judge and he felt that there was a serious issue to be tried which warranted service out of the jurisdiction to try to pursue these cases despite the what was the low fiat currency value of the NFTs in question, wasn't it? He's clearly, he's clearly a champion of pursuing fraudsters when it comes to claims over digital assets. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, he's very much the leading judge, and, and he hasn't called himself that. You know, step, the Society of Trust Estates Practitioners weighed in and, and, and said that, and he, and he definitely is. I mean, you know, creating uh, an avenue where you can serve by NFT is, of course, very flexible and, uh, and novel. So, you know, he's certainly one to to be listened to in, in this regard. And I, I think here this this talk was on the back, you know, this recent talk of 13th November 2023 is on, on the back of the most recent Law Commission paper 412, which in, entitled Digital Assets Final Report, which was published earlier this year, which essentially says that the common law world as it exists in England and Wales is, is flexible enough in this avenue, in this area, so that generally no legislative reform is necessary and that it's, it's able to fac- facilitate and support these emerging technologies. So I think he's just weighing in on that and saying, well, yes, but also we need a lot more cohesion internationally for this to work. Yeah, he gives it so that, that Law Commission paper 412. That, that's one of his list of recommended reads in this topic. So the other ones are the legal statements on crypto assets and, start, and smart contracts, sorry, which is published in November 2019, and the Original Law Commission Paper 401 on Smart Legal Contracts, published in November 2021. And that's right, because we've we've discussed, obviously, the Law Commission consultation on digital assets, haven't we? And, and I think you and I, when we discussed that in one of our earlier podcasts, spoke about actually that what's so wonderful about our legal system, our Anglo-Welsh legal system, is yeah. it evolves. It, and it can, you know, the common law, while, while let's, let's say primary legislation doesn't necessarily evolve rapidly and can move at you know at a slow pace or inevitably one or two steps behind behind the current state of things and behind societal views and perceptions then the common law can generally evolve rather more quickly because you're faced with current issues and having and judges having to deal with those and i think we thought that the common law has so far to date in england wales evolved quite well to facilitate victims of crypto fraud to enable them to obtain or to pursue remedies to try to recover their crypto assets yes it's it's a costly process but you know largely that that was going to be inevitable what is on justice pelling said in his previous talk back in july last year he actually announced an amendment to the civil procedure rules to incorporate the new service gateway 
which would allow parties to obtain Norwich Pharmacal orders. And we'll look at those in a second and remind listeners what those are. But yeah, he says that he thinks legal reform is, is necessary because the law is rapidly evolving. I mean, I'd question, well, surely common law and evolving case law is a better answer if the law is rapidly evolving than primary legislation, which is stickier, as it were. But, you know, again, I, mean, I think this comes down to how that primary law is then subsequently interpreted by the courts and adapted by the courts in the face of the evolving landscape of, of digital frauds. So, yeah, and I, I think on, on that point, I mean, his, the, the Law Commission report on, on digital assets said, yes, of course, the common law is, is great in, in this regard and it's flexible enough, which we have seen that it is. But a lot of that is is talking about perhaps you know, non-contentious matters such as smart contracts and, and other digital asset te- technologies. But when it comes, and Pelling here makes the point that most of the court's time actually in this area has been weighed down by trying to offer solutions to those who have been the victims of fraudulent behaviour. And it's, it's that international element of fraudulent behaviour because most of the crimes you see here the principal actors are based outside of England and Wales, with a lot of the victims being in England and Wales. And of course, the other international element is is the exchanges where the wallets of the victims' assets are administered. So, you know, on, on the on the basis of getting Norwich Pharmacal orders or Bankers Trust orders, getting that information, you're dealing with exchanges that are based abroad. So yeah, he you know, he's 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 laying it. He's you know, yes, the, the Law Commission is correct in terms of the non-contentious stuff. But when it comes to fraudulent activity and providing solutions there, then primary legislation, he thinks, is, of course, welcome. And I, I, I think I have to agree with that. And he's at the coalface, isn't he? That's the thing. And he's at the coalface. And this is the stuff that, that, that you know, this is what we're looking at. This is what we're predominantly discussing all the time. These are the legal issues we're we're addressing and seeing. It's it's these attempts, you know, these the victims of, of this fraud, and what he's looking to do is, I mean, ultimately, his his mo here is to streamline the process for victims because it's it's the service issues, it's jurisdictional issues. Those are the the, the common and cumbersome and costly and time consuming themes that keep arising, aren't they? So yeah, absolutely, and that's, that's the real issue. Yeah, and, and with, with you know, without you know, getting everyone bogged down before Christmas on um, you know the relevant provisions of of this of the CPR, which we don't want to do. But, I mean, he, he makes the point and, and he, he looks at it directly, you know, for, for a victim based in England and Wales to bring proceedings here in the forum and let's say before, you know, his honour judge Pelling and serve them abroad, then there's certain steps you need to take. And, and you know, the, the one to three of it is that one being you need to show that there's a serious issue to be tried as between yourself and the relevant defendant, even if that is persons unknown. We've got a good arguable case that the claim passes through one or more of the jurisdictional gateways set out in the CPR, and which we you know, now know has recently been expanded for, for this area, which is great. And of course, that then England and Wales is the most appropriate forum for the dispute to be determined. So even if you get all that, he is then saying the problem with current international cohesion is that in order to succeed in relation to the first and third of those tests, you have to deploy all the information that would be deployed in relation to the substantive claim. And that's hard. Even if you are then successful on all of those three, of course, people have been, which is encouraging. There is then the next hurdle, which is that there's no guarantee that the courts of a state other than England and Wales will enforce those kind of Norwich Pharmacal orders or Bankers Trust orders. 
So, yeah, I, you know, I, I think this is very welcome. It, it puts everything on the map. And remember, he did this in an international forum as well, which is encouraging. That, that's exactly it, isn't it? And I think the big thing for here is what we're seeing is, as with so many of these claims, I mean, this doesn't these issues arise not just in crypto fraud cases, but in many other fraud cases and many other asset tracing cases where you really do have to, it's it's the front loading of litigation, isn't it? It's setting out your whole claim because you need to your whole claim to be able to, to locate the people to be able to then impose worldwide freezing injunctions. I mean, the, the frauds involved in these cases and as is on it says that, that they tend to involve similar patterns. You know, there's those who instigate the fraud, you know, they, they advertise in a very attractive scheme or investment opportunity, normally on social media or internet site. This is how, you know, we saw with the Alpha Cripex fraud. The victim then approaches the, the fraudsters, usually by email or, or phone, and then they're either encouraged by a cryptocurrency using standard fiat currency, normal, you know, pounds and pence. Or dollars and cents, and or they uh, purchased it via you know other forms of crypto holdings they've already got, and then it's a case of either providing a private key or as we saw in uh, the Alpha Cripex, it's downloading a desktop app, which then gives the fraudsters direct access to the desktop and then to their bank accounts, and then from there then ensues these these schemes which suggest initial large gains and then you know, there's often a, a release back of some funds to lure people in further and then then there's the uh, the final hook as part of the grift which is where you get you get the big enticement of of saying well look actually there's there's let's say a million pounds of a bitcoin here you just need to pay a hundred thousand to unlock it for these various procedures and you know I was, I was thinking about it the other day one of my favorite films is the sting with uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman great film and that, that talks about, you know, it, it's got a classic old school fraud or deception there where, you you know, you reel someone in, you get them annoyed, you reel them in, you then tease them in with a, with a, with a small win. They then, you know, pound, you know, pound of dollar signs light up in their eyes and then, you, you know, you keep building up that confidence and, and that's when you get the big draw and you, and you take them for, for the, big, the big gain, don't you? And, you know, while the process is the same, the forum in which that you know that that's now evolved into is is very different, and it's now in, in a digital world. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So you're a fan then of looking at primary legislation. I think that the big thing here, as you say, it's it's international cooperation, isn't it? And what this relies on a lot of the time, because at the moment we don't have that, is the cooperation of a lot of these foreign exchange, or, well, these exchange platforms, isn't it? The exchange of the trading platforms. I mean, we saw it with you know a lot of cases we discussed in our previous podcast. You look at Huobi, for example. Yeah, based in the Seychelles, they they featured in a number of our podcasts before, where they simply went silent, didn't respond, but it meant that they were able to get the order sought. But then you've had other trading platforms like LMN Holdings, and yeah, that was a case against Bitfire, and they proactively sought to issue proceedings because they understand actually. Most people who are investing want to make sure that the trading platform they're using is going to be doing everything it can to prevent fraud. So these mm-hmm. these exchanges and platforms, they're not doing this, a lot of them aren't doing this because they feel legally compelled to. It's more a case of PR, isn't it? Uh, absolutely right. Yeah. And like you say, you know, yes, it's not, you know, it's not just a totally altruistic, you know, aspect to that. They they realize that if, if you are investing and, and you're using their exchanges, that you know, if, if you are then a victim of fraud, you'll want them to help you out. You know, they, they're doing it really for, 
the bottom line, but that's good. I mean, that obviously drives a, a situation where you can rely on them, most of them. And the very real point here is that what if you are that person that has been scammed and and, and you're not as astute, let's say, as, as others, or you've been taken for a ride, quite frankly, like you say, you know, equivalent to Paul Newman in, in the sting. Uh, and then you re- you realize you're, you're, you're lumbered with one of these exchanges that, that don't or simply just ignore you and, and you can't find anything, you, you can't rely on anything. So, I mean, one really interesting thing about this is I think really when you look through what HHJ Pelling is saying is that primary legislation here is going to take a hell of a long time. It will take many, many years to get a system where even if it is agreed on, is put into practice in a way that works internationally. And his his kind of final comment, if you look at this, which is quite interesting, is, is his quote here where it says, which is a way of getting around all of this, is to say it is possible that what will turn out to be is some form of generally approved arbitral system available for use by third parties seeking information or other orders against exchanges. So a kind of international arbitration system where you can go to that and say, look, I need some help. You've all signed up to this. You're all signatories to this and you've got a duty to do X and Y and and please help me. I think in this area, that is something that exchanges should look at. Because not that goes back to the position of oh well you know we're an we're an approved member of you know whatever it's called yeah self regulation exactly yeah. some self regulation but interestingly with all of this of course is the fact that you know crypto and, and digital assets wanted wanted really at, at the heart of it its ethos was to stay away from that kind of centralized regulation but you see here with fraud that actually it needs that so it's an interesting final comment from him but i think one that you know from from our point of view we would welcome and our clients would welcome wholeheartedly because not only will it be cheaper but you will have all of these exchanges potentially that are signed up and then you can check that before you do x and y you know before someone says to you oh well look bitcoin's gone up 150 percent this year give me ten thousand, you know fiat currency and i'll make it you know another 150 percent next year and I'm going to use this exchange, and I'm, you know, I'm located here and here. You can check all of that. It's looking to apply, well, an international solution to an international problem. That's that's, that's the point here. Is it, it's it's you know he, he's saying that as you say, it's not going to be national primary legislation that's going to resolve this. It's going to be an international effort, and it's the same actually with if we look more broadly. I mean, it's on a just depending doesn't discuss this directly but there was there was an article in uh, this month's edition of of the step journal and that was by sarah adam johnson looking at digital asset regulation across borders and likewise she calls for greater international cooperation around the regulation of crypto assets and we've discussed we've discussed the fca has it's certainly uh tightening its clamp or shifting or let's say enhancing its focus on regulation of cryptocurrency and digital assets and this is now it's something which you can see while it's been a focus of national well you know legislators it's it's something which people are looking at more broadly on an international scale both through legislation and regulation cooperation arbitration so i think we're definitely it's 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 only going to improve it the discussion is going to be adopted more broadly which it, which has to be right. It absolutely has to be right. I think he mentions a number of problems with the, with the situation as it currently is. One is around you know we we've fashioned this system of in England and Wales of applying 
constructive trust principles, haven't we, to, to stolen cryptocurrency, which, which is fine. It works in principle in many cases, but talks about examples where, where that might not actually work. So, you know, the problem is if what if you've got a contract that's been entered into under duress or fraudulently, there you can't instantly apply constructive trust principles. You have to rescind the contract first and, and make sure. So these are, are real thorny issues. Now, the only reason the constructive trust has worked is because those are the only cases the courts have seen. At the present, the courts in England and Wales haven't yet seen cases which you know, which have involved contractual principles applying to stolen crypto assets. But John Spelling is saying that this is, you know, these are issues that are bound to be seen in the future. So we need to start looking at this at this now. Yeah, no, I mean it's a, it's a great one for people to go in and read. It's in the courts and tribunals judiciary in, in their publication, December seven. Yeah, I mean the speech was given on thirteenth of November. It's very it's very thorough. I mean, if this is a transcript, then it's you know it's, it's amazing in the way it was delivered. So an, an amazing um, uh, recall of memory with, with everything, which shows you know that, that actually the English courts are at, at the top of the game with this. I would say. Well, I think so. Uh, he does. He he does. Then doesn't he? he talks about New Zealand, Singapore courts also following. I would say as well the the English and Welsh lead on this, but it, it's a good thing that they're following it. And of course, those you know, it's, it's encouraging. So. Yeah, I, I think everyone should go and read it if you're interested in, in, in this area, which we definitely are. I mean, yeah, this is where we're seeing a, a lot of our inquiries coming in. It's a very welcome welcome approach. I, I mean, for me, I, it, it would be amazing to see how the system of an international arbitration in this would, would work. But I do think that it's one, you know, one where if you were a leading exchange and you were involved in a lot of these cases in terms of requiring to, to or having you know, been on, on, on the in a direction where you need to provide information, I think such a system would be something really, really welcomed by everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think. Yeah. And I don't just say that selfishly from having to run cases like this where you don't have an international arbitration. It's more so for the victims. Well, no, but it has to to be, you know, there's been so much bad press around. We take the FTX case, a classic example, Mm. but that's one of a number. And they have, they've caused many, serious investors to lose faith yeah. in investing in cryptocurrencies and trading them. But having said that, since that, the value of Bitcoin, of Ether, of other mm. cryptocurrencies has bounced back and, and then some. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. We've seen in the past the past three months in particular, you've seen cryptocurrency have, I wouldn't say rocketed in value, but there's been a, a steady and firm increase in value. Now, whether or not that will hold, and if so, for how long, remains to be seen but i think there are some some investors who are who are breathing a sigh of relief oh yeah and you know what what i suspect this will do is one would imagine that these steps will help to stabilize the volatility around the value of these assets yeah absolutely so there we have it you know potential legislation regulation arbitration on the horizon, so it's just a case really of, of watching this space. But know that the Law Commission are looking at this or have looked at this. But you know, we've got one of the leading judges saying, "Well, we think the Law Commission's report and views probably don't go far enough." So it's, um, I think it's, it like says, it needs it needs international cooperation. Yeah, yeah. I think that wraps up our summary, isn't it? On to Christmas. Uh, On to Christmas. There we go. Time for you to uh, start buying presents, wrapping presents. <laughs> That's your focus now. 
nothing like nothing like last minute stuff. We'll see everyone in the new year with with potentially some very exciting collaborations, which I, I, I'm not sure if we can talk about now until perhaps we do. Should we should we leave everyone guessing or not? We'll, we'll leave everyone guessing, I think, and uh, and then yeah, that'll be a, a, a post Christmas, a late a late Christmas present for for those one or two regular listeners. <laughs> Your dad. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much, Raymond. All right. Well, cheers, Kieran. And uh, have a great one. Yeah, you too. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. And there we have it. That wraps up our podcast for today. Thanks for listening to Lawyers on the Block. If you made it this far, then you clearly enjoyed it. So why not subscribe to make sure you hear the next episode as soon as it comes out. Remember, nothing on this podcast is financial or legal advice. But if you do want to talk to a lawyer about any crypto issues that you may have, then please do get in touch at crypto at hughjames.com. Thank you.